1: All right, and welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 408 for the week of Monday, March 12th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman.
2: Uh You could say no news is good news, but in my case, I'm living in the past. <laughs>
1: Well, if no news is good news, then this show is bad news because we got lots of good news to get to. So let's start things off with Gene and some news actually from today's recording date. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I'm not too sure this is good news or not, but apparently I'm looking at a a, a article from uh, IT Wire dated today, Monday, March 12th, indicating that uh, the head of NASA, Charlie Bolden, is indicating that it looks like he's going to be looking at an extension. Of NASA going ahead to use the uh, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft into two thousand and seventeen rather than two thousand and sixteen, uh, once again, the reason cited by NASA is a budgetary constraint, and some and some members of Congress now are questioning how this money is going to be used. He went through essentially a little bit of a gauntlet last week uh, in front of both the House and Senate committees. Uh, trying to go ahead and an- answer questions about the NASA budget. Um, again, it's it's kind of it, it's a 17.7 billion dollar fiscal year budget for next year, and I don't really really think it's it's enough to go ahead and, and allow NASA to continue with all of the work it's charged to doing for the for the next year. Uh, Apparently, too, it looks like that um, we may be reallocating money according to uh, an article I'm reading here again from the uh, Houston Chronicle uh, that was uh, dated sometime last week. But apparently during the hearing, uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson heard that uh, money was going to be moved from NASA's uh, SLS Orion project over to to the Commercial Crew Development Program, or CCDEV, and Senator Hutchinson from uh, Texas was a little bit floored at that one and was really, really taking Bolden to task. To quote here from the article, she said, I am frankly floored, as you know, from our conversation that it would be so blatant to take money right out of Orion and the space launch system and put it into the commercial crew rather than to try to accomplish the joint goals that we have, have putting forward both and making sure that we did not take away from any of the timetables for the future shore-up of the commercial crew program, and just asked uh, General Bolden to go ahead and explain all of that. He basically said that, look, I'm going to, quote, I'm going to have to pay the Russians $450 million annually for every year. I don't have an American capability to put humans in low-Earth orbit. And he said, quote, you know, I don't want to do that, but uh, you and I have both agreed, but that's the price I have to pay, close quote. So, again, apparently what we're trying to do is bolster CCDEV, trying to get that project really, really moving, because that's the priority right now. And, again, the money is going to come out of, and I sort of saw this coming, out of the SLS Orion budget, because, again, SLS and Orion do not have a mission set one of the big things that happened during during at least the Senate part of that was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson coming on board, and uh, he basically gave his testimony. And uh, for anybody that missed that, I'm, I'm hoping it's available somewhere out there. If you, I'm sure if you look at that up on YouTube, you'll find it. But that testimony was just absolutely incredible. He basically said that, you know, again, NASA's an economic engine. We've been saying that here on this program. Uh, for the past two years, and I've been kind of sort of saying the same thing out there on Twitter and anybody else that I can grab my ear that that I can hop on my soapbox on. But he said it far more elegantly, and he also gave the point, too, that... And when a nation allows itself to dream
1: big, these dreams prevail in the citizens' ambitions. They energize the electorate. During the Apollo era, you didn't need government programs trying to convince people that doing science and engineering was good for the country.
0: It was self Evident. Again, a dynamic week on Capitol Hill, but wow, um, a lot to consider and a lot to think about out there. And the bad news being that it looks like we're going to be hitching the ride with with the Russians out to 2017. It's uh, not, not a good deal. Not a good deal at all.
1: All right, then, continuing along, many of you tend to like to listen to us on your iPhones or iPods or devices similar to that. And if you own an iPhone, you probably have heard of the game Angry Birds. Well, there's a new edition coming out called Angry Birds Space. Now, Angry Birds Space is special because it actually uses space-related physics in it relating to zero-g, and that was actually designed in cooperation with people at NASA. As of 2011, it was the most popular game for the iPhone. As well as the actual game itself, astronaut Don Pettit aboard the International Space Station gave a little physics demonstration, which we can link to, showing a little bit about the space-related physics that will be seen in the game. So, what do you guys think? Interesting that they're asking NASA, or just a really good marketing ploy? I don't know if it's
0: marketing Sawyer. I think it's more of an outreach mechanism for NASA too, trying to go ahead and and getting its, if anything, getting its brand out there to uh, to folks that normally may not really really care. So uh, again, it's a it's a wonderful <laughs> wonderful tool to go ahead and try to get some space goodness out there. I think.
1: I should add this in now for those who do not know what Angry Birds is. It's a game available for. Almost all mobile platforms as well as Google Chrome. And what you can do is you are a bunch of birds. It's an army of different birds that have different specialties that go along with them. The goal is to fling them into other objects and using the physics that go along with it, destroy green pigs for points inside. And that's the basic gist of it. And this game will have six new birds as well to go along with it. And it's an interesting, fun game. I suggest if you have not played it to go ahead and give it a try. And if you lose multiple hours of your life because of it, I apologize. The fact that they're teaming up with NASA personally and that they're using actual physics rather than just made-up physics, that that they actually went to NASA to figure out how they can make it as realistic as possible, I think that's going to make the game even more entertaining, if not all the more frustrating. I believe there's still one more person here lined up with the story. Mark, what do you have for us? Well, as long as we're talking about the weather, oh no, wait a minute,
2: that was uh, that was two weeks ago. But uh, I thought I'd give a little update on interesting stuff, at least to me, because there's so much of this in the uh, in the NASA mission list. They launched a satellite a while back called the NPP, which stands for National Polar Orbiting Partnership Satellite. It has since been named the Suomi NPP, and its purpose is to make global environmental observations. The Suomi NPP mission elapsed time has been 136 going on 137 days as we record here, and to me it's an interesting device in that it has so many types of observations that it can make. They have five different instruments, they're going to be looking at uh, both atmospheric ozone and aerosols they're going to look at sea and land surface temperatures they're going to monitor sea ice land ice and glaciers around the world and this is going to continue observations that noaa has been making for us from satellite observation for quite a number of years it continues that work it's also the first of a new generation of of orbiting satellites just one of the uh, one of the observations that I mentioned is the ozone measurement and it continues 30 years of ozone data that uh, that we have on record. Now I hate to say it, I know that sometimes you hear information that talks about the temperature is a tenth of a degree up or you know these, these small seemingly changes that are referenced over the past several decades and one of the things that I have trouble with is that Weather is a constantly changing phenomenon. Um, the best predictions don't really nail it down until you get to within sometimes 24 hours and even less for a, for a good prediction. And I think when we look backwards, that, that even with the best of science, I think we're possibly doing quite a bit of guesswork. But the ozone mapper, nonetheless, 30 years is nothing to sneeze at. And it does look at the ozone layer, the changes to it. And I saw a reference to the fact that with uh, recovery from a couple of decades ago and changes that they may get back to the improved ozone levels by the year 2070. So as much as we want to make a lot of changes to our vehicles and our factories and, and emissions you know, nationwide, We're fighting the overall contribution made by the world. And of course, I'm not saying don't bother. But um, the best we can do, we can't expect change overnight. So anyway, the NPP has been commissioned. It's in service. And the uh, NOAA organization, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they're thrilled with the performance of it. They're going to be using their advanced sensors for life saving weather forecasts. They're going to track volcanic eruptions and improve understanding of long-term weather and climate patterns. The, uh, this is the first of the, the JPSS series, which is Joint Polar Satellite System. And this is the first in the new series. The, the actual first satellite, this is, this is kind of a bridge device, this, um, this MPP. Mm-hmm. But the first satellite that's going to build on that will be launched in
0: 2016. Wow. Sweet. Still, uh, be looking forward to seeing what uh, how how that mission pans out over time.
2: Well, if anybody wants to know what the weather is in um, where I live in Lake City, or where I work in am and Gainesville, I can give you pretty good confidence on the numbers that uh, that we send out because that's one of the things that's part of my world is weather systems.
1: All right, I'll be sure to call you uh, for Florida weather if I ever need it. How's that? It'll be sunny. All right. All right, so we've made our first trip around this round table, and we are ready for trip number two, which keeps us in Florida, but goes back to Gene. Well,
0: when we last left pad 39A, at that point, there really weren't any any secure plans. Uh, it was to be kept in what's called shuttle ready status, and uh, and that was really about it. I thought because you know, maybe it was a it was a funding thing or something like that that they didn't want to touch pad 39A just yet. They were just dealing with 39B and 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 the pad there and getting rid of the you know the the RSS and the fixed launch launch structure and and getting it ready for for any type of challenge that may may be coming uh, down the pike. Well, the report from uh, Spaceflight Now basically said that SpaceX or Space Exploration Technologies are in what they're calling, quote, advanced discussions for SpaceX to use the historic Pad 39A um, for the uh, Falcon Heavy. Uh, Apparently, SpaceX is studying how to go ahead and assemble and and launch rockets from Pad 39A, um, including, you know, as you know, they're, they're infamous for their horizontal integration systems. So they're trying to figure out, gee, how do we go ahead and make that happen from you know Pad Thirty Nine A? Well, uh, so I, I thought that this was kind kind of interesting. Um, apparently, uh, to to quote uh, from the article, uh, a, a spokesperson Michael Baracus basically said, "quote KSC did an assessment of op- of options for SpaceX to consider relative relative to their non." Uh, exclusive use of pad 39a so apparently they are looking again to launch Falcon Heavy and Falcon Heavy alone from there and um, uh, right now uh, aside from its uh, uh, demonstration flight uh, which is set for 2013 there are no other plans to use Falcon Heavy uh, as Sawyer you were over at launch complex 40 so so as I Mark I don't know if you got there out there or not but we, you know, looking at that area, pretty much we know what, what the dimensions of the Falcon Heavy are, and I don't think Launch Complex Forty is going to be able to cut Falcon Heavy, um, so they're going to need something a little bit, you know, something a little bit more complex, a little bigger, and and a lot more friendlier for uh, for this thing. But it would be nice to see Pad Thirty Nine A finally be used again for something.
1: Right. I mean, we got to stand underneath that thing, and it's rather large one thing that I find is really going to be interesting is that will NASA give this the OK? I mean, they, they've been keeping it shut already. And, and is NASA going to be fine, you know, just giving it up knowing that they have in the pipeline their Orion if that ever gets off?
0: Well, they may have to figure out a way for 39A 39A to, um, I'm thinking, you know, the only thing I am thinking right now, what they would have to do with 39A is do the same thing that they did with pad 39B, which is basically go to the clean pad implementation. So you'd have to go ahead and take out the, you know, the remote service structure. You'd have to take out the fixed service structure and uh, essentially do the same thing you did with 39B to 39A. Uh, in order to accommodate, probably to accommodate both uh, SLS, um, the Orion, and then eventually, um, you know, eventually uh, the SpaceX uh, uh, Falcon Heavy. Uh, So uh, that's the only way I can see it. The other thing, too, is who's going to pay for that reclamation since it looks like SpaceX may be also a, um, a, you know, basically a user of that facility. Is the U.S. taxpayer going to fit the entire bill? Or is SpaceX going to say, well, all right, fine, we'll give you a, a little bit toward the clearing of that because you have to go ahead and set it up to our spe- specifications. Or is it just going to be on NASA's – is the onus just going to be on NASA to clear that out? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to 39A if SpaceX says, yeah, we could do that. But can they do it with the existing um, the existing tower? Good question. Don't know
1: as well, does that also mean that they'll have access to the VAB?
0: I would think so. I mean, the, the article basically said that the, there are sections of the Vehicle Assembly Building that are going to be available to any of the commercial folks that want it. Um, I understand, too, that Boeing is going to have one of the uh, OPFs, the Orbiter Processing Facilities, for um, uh, setting up its CST-100 once it starts getting uh, you know its operations going. So, Um, yeah, I would figure that, that, that SpaceX would be allowed to use the vehicle assembly building if they so want it. However, again, you have to remember too, that's kind of the vehicle assembly building is, is really kind of not their style. If you will, uh, they have a tendency to go ahead and put everything together horizontally and then kind of, kind of put it, put it up the same way the Russians do. Um, we have a tendency to build things up. Um, or at least you know the, 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 stat, the shuttle stack was that way, the Saturn V was that way. So I don't know, but I'm, I, I'm sure that there's going to be a section, if they want it, uh, available um, for, uh, for integration.
2: And from a discussion that I had with uh, one of the press site folks last year, uh, there's a lot of the infrastructure that's for rent, uh, the shuttle landing facility, the VAB, the PADS, The uh, SRB Assembly and Refurbishment Facility, the ARF, I believe, is the term they came up with for it, and some other things that I'm drawing a blank on. So, you know, it is something you have to pay for. And if anybody thinks, oh, well, we'll get so and so to pay for it, uh, sorry. I still don't think we can call this commercial space enterprise anything other than still a government uh, funded enterprise. So, if SpaceX pays for it, yeah they're going to pay for it, but it's going to be through NASA money NASA contracts and in that respect i don't know that it's much different than everything we've had for decades
0: you're absolutely right on that I mean right now NASA's the only you know aside from some other folks really NASA's the only only uh, client at this point, yes, SpaceX has got some other uh, some other contracts with uh, other satellite providers but um, Pretty much its biggest client is going to be the American taxpayer.
1: It'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with Pad 39A in the future. It's still sad just not to see a shuttle on it. I'm sorry.
0: Amen, Sawyer.
1: Alrighty then. So while we're talking about commercialized space and getting into low Earth orbit without using a government agency, there's an interesting system that's being proposed by a new company called StarTram Orbital. And they would be coming up with something called the Maglev Train to Low Earth Orbit. Now, the Maglev Train is not a new concept. In fact, it's something that's used somewhat commonly now. It's basically a system that uses a train, except instead of the train riding on the tracks, it uses a magnetic levitation system, hence the name Maglev. Now, this is from a website called gizmag.com, as well as sourcefed.com. And the concept is, is that it would be a way to get into low-Earth orbit. Now, it would basically be about a 1,000-mile-long or 1,600-kilometer-long vacuum-sealed tube. And what it would do is it would launch through that, and in doing so would help reduce some of the Gs that go along with it, kept at about atmospheric conditions of 75 kilometers in that vacuum tube, That vacuum tube would allow any sonic booms or any other results of going supersonic to release without causing major damage to the vehicle. And in doing so, it would then continue for about a 1,000 miles in length, and at which point it would go to an elevation of about 20 kilometers or about 12 miles. In doing so, this would reduce the Gs that would occur if they were to go straight up and launching them right into space. And it would be lifted up all the way up that high, getting it to the speed that it needs to go, and therefore launching it into low-Earth orbit. Now, the cost of this for an unmanned cargo-only would be about $20 billion and would take about 10 years to build. For a crewed version, it would take about 20 years and $60 billion to build, and this would obviously have to be a multinational endeavor. And why do this, though, is an interesting question that this article addresses. And when you think about it, the cost to get anything into space currently is $50 per kilogram. That's per 2.2 pounds. And when you think about the cost of it, space shuttle program costs about $170 billion. ISS cost about $150 billion to date. And this is just apparently a much cheaper, easier option and that can be done within the next 10 to 20 years. What do you guys think?
0: Dumb question. So, are the 170 billion dollars for the shuttle is that over the over a 30 year lifespan?
1: No, that was it? the startup.
0: Okay, uh, that's. I just wanted to. Yeah, because something just didn't seem right.
1: No, that's the startup to get oh. the shuttle program started.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, d- dumb question. Did they give you? Did Did the article go into if if the um, 60 billion dollars for the uh, crude version of this were to be allocated, obviously you'd have have to have a consortium of many nations to go ahead and put this thing together. And I guess they would have to go ahead and rent time on it. Um, Did they say what the cost would be per launch under this system as opposed to a chemical rocket
1: system? It does not say how much for this one, according to this. Although it does say that at least for getting cargo into space according to their website it would be capable of launching 300,000 tons of payload for less than $40 a kilogram as opposed to the current 50
0: um the maglevs yeah you're right right so th- that's a it's they're they're a fairly mature technology i mean trains are using them now um, to go ahead and, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that's what, what these high speed bullet trains use. So it should be pretty interesting to see, uh, if this actually could come about, is there any, in- the, the other question I would have, is there any interest from, you know, ESA, NASA, JAXA, you know, uh, the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, anybody, um, that they might dive in on this and, or take it seriously.
1: I have not heard anything yet. It's a relatively new system here that we've got going.
0: So, in other words, we still have have some homework to do on this puppy, but it's feasible.
1: In fact, Sandia National Laboratories carried out a quote-unquote murder squad investigation of the concept, which is <laughs> done to find out any flaws in any proposed projects, and they gave it a clean bill of health. Hmm.
0: So now all we got to do is get uh, get the multinational consortium, which was started out with the uh, with the ISS, to go ahead and say, you guys want to look into this or what? Exactly. So we'll have to see.
1: Indeed. Who needs platform nine and three quarters or who needs the bullet train when you can go to space on one? <laughs> all right. Well, we've got one more stop on our train here in this round around the table, and it goes back to Mark. Who let the dog out?
2: Oh. Who? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, actually, this is about a new X plane, the X 56A, the MUTT, the Multi Use Technology Testbed. And this is something that NASA is working on in combination with the Air Force Research Laboratory. And what they've got coming down the pike for us is a, uh, a very unique X type uh, aircraft. The basics of it is for the Air Force, long endurance reconnaissance, but also we've got some interest in commercial transports and and things that can be done to save, imagine that, save gas by having a lighter aircraft structure, more efficient, less drag. Uh, But One of the concerns from what I read here, and this is an aviation week, dot com article by Guy Norris last last month actually, more of me living in the past, but uh, it says here that a freshman aerodynamics student knows that some designs are potentially prone to a phenomenon called flutter, and that's the, if anybody's ever been on a plane and looked out the window at the wing and maybe some turbulent flight and rough weather and uh, and seen the, the wing of the aircraft moving it's can be a little unsettling because you wonder how strong is all of this? Well it's plenty strong in the case of commercial aircraft and for that matter general aviation and certainly military. But how do you how do you find out where that point of no return is? Well this multi use technology test bed is going to be a kind of a, if you think of some of Burt Rutan's aircraft from, from the years in the past, the Long Easy and the Very Easy, it looks like a wing with a fuselage kind of sticking forward from it and two winglets. It's not the conventional fuselage with the wing mid-body and then the tail with the rudder and elevators. It's, it's very unlike that. But uh, the, the picture that I see is of a small aircraft. It's got a 28-foot wingspan this is being worked on at uh, Dryden's Flight Research Facility. When it's turned over to uh, and starts flying, they expect it to be delivered in late April. It'll start flights in uh, July and continue through September. They're talking about a 25-hour flight test effort with the Air Force as part of their program and then NASA gets involved with it, and they start looking at more, I guess you'd say more of common interest type aviation aspects. This aircraft is made that the wings can be replaced. And furthermore, it's made so that if they have problems, for instance, if you have a wing fail in flight, what happens? Well, there goes your X test aircraft. Not so in this one. What they're going to have on it is a ballistic parachute that's uh, similar to what's used on a Cirrus SR-22. I guess some of those aircraft have this, where a pilot can get into trouble and and, and can pull the handle and fire a parachute at the uh, aircraft and actually land the aircraft safely by parachute. A survivable type scenario that you know where a pilot would be fearing for his life and possibility of of um, putting a hole in the dirt down below. Well, this this mut X-56 is going to have the same ballistic parachute system. It's a turbojet-powered uh, aircraft. And the wing is made to be replaced. And they're going to have different types of wings. They're going to have stiff wings. They're going to have more flexible sets. And so they're going to do some interesting research on it. And it will give NASA some good value, some good parameters to, to give back to the commercial aviation, to the designers, to uh, to show them. Hey, here's some things that that might help you out in saving gas, decreasing weight, and making a next generation of uh, transport aircraft for the for the world.
0: So, Mark, this this thing's going to have. A, you know or it, it it's it's also going to have this 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 parachute test because i've seen that in use or or i've seen it tested on 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 nasa television uh the parachute system where they take a conventional you know commercial you know private aircraft you know about maybe a two seater and I've seen this thing, you know, with the parachute unfurled and it just kinda of sort of floating <laughs> floating down. And I'm just thinking, you know, if if that was more and more in use, uh, how safe you know, safer would uh you know private aviation be?
2: That could be a definite help and and this is a small small aircraft. It's a, a UAV type test test bed. It's a 28 foot wingspan. The gross takeoff weight of the X56 is 480 pounds. So you know this is definitely manageable and recoverable by parachute. Um, That's something to be interesting to see. But I I don't remember hearing about it anything other than a small, maybe a two seat or four seat aircraft. I'm not sure what the application for that would be. You know beyond that, but it's uh, interesting to keep in mind. That has a lot going on there. We talked about the weather a bit ago, and here we are looking at, at new designs for, for aircraft.
1: We seem to be hitting all your specialties, right, Mark? Weather and aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> Give
2: me a chance to talk. I'll come up with something.
1: <laughs> and you've never failed. Don't worry about that. All right. Let's see. That was round one. Then we did round two, which means we're on our final round. And once again, it goes back to Gene.
0: This is a little issue that we've talked about on this program a couple times. We've had uh, uh, an expert uh, on the program uh, talking about this particular subject, and that is uh, space debris and space debris mitigation. Uh, Just this last – just this past Monday – uh Lockheed Martin they are have a uh a contract with the uh the US Air Force um it's an 18 month 107 million dollar contract awarded by uh, by the Air Force back in uh uh 2011 and I'm looking at the, directly looking at the Lockheed Martin website here they're developing something called Space Fence and uh what they're hoped to do with this thing is to go ahead and track about you know twenty thousand pieces of debris that that are still up there. I'm sorry that I'm sorry that's two hundred thousand thousand objects, not not twenty thousand. I would stand corrected here. Um, but anyway, look, Raytheon is also competing for for this particular uh, this particular contract. But um, the the radar that they've developed, according to the uh, Popular Science uh, website here, is a, a solid state. S band radar. It's the same type that uh, the Navy uses, and uh, some uh, Mark, some weather radar also uses. Um, it's according to uh, popular mm, popular science here. It's wavelength frequency can detect much smaller objects than current than any current space debris tracking. And apparently, this system can go ahead and monitor uh, twenty thousand. There's my number twenty thousand of the one hundred million or so objects in orbit. Uh, that it and it can't see anything smaller than about 11 11 inches in diameter. That's something that they're still trying trying to get, o- get over the hurdle of. But um, there's there's plenty of and there's plenty of orbital debris, a heck of a lot smaller than that, um, especially after accidental collisions and and of course we have the Chinese that deliberately uh, hit one of their defunct weather satellites with a missile and you know threw all that other stuff out out of there um but uh, this is just again another step in uh, in trying to uh be more and more aware of the situation in low earth orbit uh it again space debris has threatened the international space station a few times and will continue to do so during its lifetime uh and again that's something that we've got to go ahead and take a look at it and watch over uh that you know uh, space situational awareness is part of all that and we've got to go ahead and just make sure that uh Um, You know, our satellites and, and, uh, you know, again, satellites like the one, Mark, you mentioned will not be endangered by any uh, piece of of debris out there. So, again, this is a step in the right direction. And uh, hopefully uh, the the Lockheed Martin plan works. And and Raytheon, of course, will be bringing their system up to bear. And we'll see which which company wins. But uh, Space Fence looks like it's uh, just one step closer to reality.
1: Alright, it comes back to me then, and while we're talking about reclaiming parts, let's go back to the days of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And we've talked about events similar to this before on this podcast, one in particular that we discussed was about NASA astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who had a camera, and he was trying to sell it, and NASA said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's ours, not yours, you can't sell it. In the end, he donated that to Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. But this, along with another previous incident involving a checklist from Apollo 13, brings up the interesting question of whose property is it? Is it NASA's property or is it the astronauts' property? Well, there's legislation that's being proposed now that would actually allow Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts to maintain full ownership rights of personal items from their missions, such as checklists and other logs. Now, this bill is being introduced by Representative Ralph Hall from Texas, who is also the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee Chairman, and the panel's top Democrat, Representative Eddie Johnson as well, of Texas. That panel, by the way, oversees NASA. So this is really an interesting bill, allowing people to keep this. This does not include moon rocks, I should add, but does include any personal items that they had, such as that camera. What do you guys think about this? Do you think that the astronauts should be allowed to keep their stuff, or is it NASA's property?
0: Bravo! That's all I'm going to say. uh, The the, the story that you mentioned, Sawyer, was uh, about the uh, uh, infamous... Uh, arithmetic uh, setup that uh, Jim Lovell had on board um, to try to figure out uh, where their position was and so on um, as far as uh, uh, getting the LEM started after after the accident and I believe he wanted to auction that that thing off and that was another thing that kind of sort of spurred this whole thing on Um, NASA said yeah not so fast Uh, who really owns that the US taxpayer or do you well, you know, with all due respect, that was going to be burned up with Aquarius if it was just left behind. Um, I believe also Lovell, uh, in his book uh, Lost Moon, aka Apollo 13, said that he had taken the uh, uh, one of the control sticks from uh, from uh, uh, Aquarius and uh, and brought it with him. And again, that would have been burned up. So, you know, and, and again, who owns it? Does the U.S. taxpayer or he does? Well, we are going to burn it. So, uh, you know, again, bravo. These are mementos. These are, these are probably going to end up being family heirlooms or wind up in a museum somewhere for everybody to appreciate. So, again, God, you know, God bless the, the Congress for this one. I'm, I'm, I'm applauding it. Bravo. And uh, I'm glad uh, this is, this is going to come to a, a, a amicable conclusion.
2: I'm going to give you two different perspectives. I'm going to argue with myself on this one. On one hand, if you turn back the clock to the day and you were a Mercury or a Gemini astronaut and uh, or a Apollo astronaut, and you were about ready to head for home, and you know, you finished a mission, uh, got debriefed, and you're walking out the door ready to take off for a couple weeks, and in your attaché case or in your duffel bag or something, you had some relic from your mission, some souvenir is about all it amounted to, I'm sure, for, for different people in different times, is a souvenir, something to to remember the event by, not necessarily something that they thought was going to be auctioned off for, for hundreds of dollars or thousands or tens of thousands. If if the rules were that no, I'm sorry, you'll have to leave this, you can't take this off the property uh, this is uh, this is something that we have to account for. It's inventoried, and I'm sorry, the answer is no. But on the other hand, for the astronauts that pulled this off and came up with these various trinkets and got away with it, um, in that perspective, I would tell NASA and the U.S. government, hey, tough, you guys weren't sharp enough to stop me 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, last summer. You weren't sharp enough to stop me and catch me then. Tough. It's mine. I'll do it at what I want. Which is right. Who knows?
1: Exactly. Because most of these, again, like you mentioned, Gene, just get passed down from family members and others end up getting auctioned off for charity. So I personally have to side with the astronauts on this one. And in an article from the L.A. Times, it mentions that a NASA spokesperson, Bob Jacobs, said, quote, will obviously support whatever comes out of the legislative process. And Administrator Bolden, last month, said, quote, These are American heroes, fellow astronauts, and personal friends who have acted in good faith, and we have committed to work together to find the right policy and legal paths forward to address outstanding ownership questions. So, it appears as if NASA is trying to play neutral, but I have a feeling this is going to go the way of the astronauts, because this does not apply to shuttle. This is only Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And as important as these are in terms of being artifacts of history... They belong to the people who use them, in my opinion, whatever NASA says, because NASA has no policy regarding this.
0: Yeah, it, it, exactly. If they wanted something you know, in stone, they should have put that in place way beforehand, and they didn't. So
1: Nope, there's one in place for the shuttle, but there's not one in place for Mercury, Gemini, or Apollo.
0: They learned their lessons, apparently.
1: <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right, I believe we have one last story before we finish off here today, and Mark, you get the honors. Turn the way back dial just
2: a little ways back. Three, two, one, ignition. Mm, Well, in this case, I'm going to talk about a different kind of ignition. Anybody know that there is a national ignition facility, and it is the home since 2009 of the world's largest laser The NIF, National Ignition Facility, has 192 intense laser beams that can deliver to a target more than 60 times the energy of any previous laser system. It became operational, like I said, in 2009 in March of that year, and it's capable of directing nearly 2 million joules of ultraviolet laser energy in billionth of a second pulses to the target chamber center. They can generate pressure and temperatures more than 100 million degrees and pressures more than 100 billion times the Earth's atmosphere. What's the significance of this? Well, let me tell you. Can you think of any other place in the known universe that might have extreme temperature and pressures? Like, let's say, some of these so-called super Earths that have been discovered by our exoplanet research and study missions. And I wonder what happens inside the depths of those planets. What would be the temperatures and pressures there? And one of the interesting things to me, and this is a tie-in to space, is that diamond is formed under extreme temperature and pressure, and it's formed from carbon, which is, from what I read, the fourth most abundant element in the universe. And it's important to planetary science to have an understanding of what's happening inside some of these super-Earth-type planets. So who knows? There's diamonds in them their skies, you know? Maybe uh, maybe we'll have some future economic uh, financial model built on going to the stars because, uh, you know, there well ought to be diamonds at such and such a point based on what we see from way far off. That might be a bit of a stretch even for science fiction, but who knows? So 192 laser beams, they've got 60,000 control points for the electronics, high voltage, the optical and mechanical devices, motorized mirrors, and lenses, energy power sensors, video cameras, laser amplifiers, diagnostic instruments, large scale computer control system, um, you think about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, there's lots of fascinating places that you can dream of going and dream of working, and who knows? There may well be people today that will be at the next generation facility, even though this is you know, barely three years old now. There could be some people thinking of, gee, I would really love to work at such and such. But uh, how about that? 192 laser beams highest power focused in the world
0: that's that is too cool uh, the 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 purpose of of that mark is is there a there is there a science purpose obviously there's a military implication but is the purpose of that particular laser beam you know uh, just from a study of how uh, hot we can get this thing or or is it is it just just a is there is some other in-depth science purpose to it
2: It's quite a variety, I'm sure. Uh, One of the things that they look at is how different materials behave under the extreme conditions. To me, this is a little hard to to visualize with, with lasers, but they're talking about hydrodynamics. And that's the behavior of fluids of unequal density as they mix. And I I imagine the connection there might be that when you hit a a target with a high-powered x-ray that you're vaporizing it, you're causing a momentary fusion process nearly to occur, and you're, you're changing solids to liquids to gas, and there's a lot of state change magic that happens. It's really
1: something to look at. And with that, that brings our episode to its conclusion. Now, before we wrap up, Gene has something that he would like to address really quickly.
0: Yeah, um, I got a letter from a gentleman by the name of Anthony Fitch. Anthony and I are pretty good friends. We've corresponded, and he was one of the—he uh, was the prime engineer at Space Up Houston, getting all that uh, goodness together. Um, Anthony had some commentary about some comments I made uh, last week with reference to China and the, the hacking that was occurring on a story that you, Sawyer, uh, brought up. Um, to, to quote him, and I'll, I'll quote him directly from uh, from the note, um, I just wanted to send you a comment about, about something you said on the latest episode of Talking Space when you mentioned that China needs to lay off, ha- off hacking NASA. I just wanted to let you know that it was – Possible, you know, or most likely, it may have been somebody else. As I type this, I realize you could could have been kidding, but uh, I just thought I'd show, show you this. Just because an attack appears to originate from one place, the attacker could be in a completely different location. For example, even though that the attack could have appeared from China, it was it was doing do, – that China was doing it, the attack could have been next door, door to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Many cyber attacks appearing – uh, com- that come from china and russia but it's most likely because that's the highest concentration of inf- infected computers are in those areas of the world that could probably be largely attributed to poor economies so people buy hacked modified copies of windows with vulnerabilities already mastered in- into the disk i just want to give you a heads up and that i could s- explain that in more detail if you want later thank you much um anthony i i, I- I, yeah, I, I know that that IPs can be spoofed and, yeah, that, you know, software can be copied. And, again, who's doing the copying primarily and who's doing the selling? And, again, it's China. I mean, China, again, there's a – I remember uh, – I don't know – I don't exactly remember the article. But um, I do remember complaints about a, 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 a version of the Ford F-150 that China sort of counterfeited. Uh, there are other things that that China has been doing that uh, you know again due to counterfeiting and things like that. I don't want it to sound like I'm anti-China, but again, if some of these hacks are indeed coming from there, uh, and I, and it's due to IP spoofing, fine, I stand corrected. But I don't know if I am you know. China again has got to stop with the counterfeiting. It's got to stop with with uh, with a lot of the economic warfare that they've been doing, um, and and I still consider it as such. Um, and uh, I, I I I totally am, am with you on, on on the spoofing. I used to be a systems administrator another life, so I kind of sort of have an inkling or or kind of remember how all that works. Yeah, Anthony, I'd love to go ahead and get into an in-depth discussion with you at some point with that. So, uh, again, thanks for your note. Thanks for uh, letting me in on this. And uh, uh, we have a little bit of a difference of opinion, but that's okay. That's what we're here for. And, again, thanks for sending me the note. I appreciate it. And, again, I'd love to go more with you in depth on that, and I'll probably go ahead and walk away learning something. So, thanks.
1: And also thanks for listening, too. Indeed. Just to add on to that as well, uh, as I said last week, I'm going to restate it again this week. Hacking suspects have been arrested in China, Estonia, Great Britain, Italy, Nigeria, Portugal, Romania, and Turkey. Oops. And with that, that does bring our episode to its final conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here today. Thank you for joining us, Gene Mikalka.
0: It was a fun night, Sawyer. I learned a lot. Thanks a lot.
1: And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Three, two, one. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. We're not there yet. First, we need to say that we'd like to thank everybody here who listened. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.